Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. Twenty twenty and twenty twenty one were two years that upended daily life in the Bay Area in big ways as we faced pandemic risks, choking wildfire smoke, and a spike in violent crime. Well, now that we're closing out twenty twenty two, we have the chance to ask the question, how will this year be remembered? Welcome to KCBS in depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Manconi. Today in the program, we're going to reflect on some of the biggest Bay Area news stories and most impactful trends from the past 12 months to try to get a better handle on what could be in store for 2023. Joining me for that conversation, someone who keeps her finger on the pulse of Bay Area news from her anchor chair at KCBS, my colleague, Patty Rising. Patty Rising, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Also joining us, someone who breaks down the news for each morning and each evening at the station, KCBS insider Phil Mateer. Hi, Phil. Well, good afternoon. Good morning. Good day. All covering all of our bases on this uh, New Year's weekend. And uh, there are so many big stories that we could be talking about on this program. Uh, this is, after all, a year that started with the Omicron surge, along with a, a surge of another variety, a uh, literal tsunami that hit the West Coast in January. Then we went on to see the Warriors win the NBA championship, uh, the permanent closure of a portion of JFK drive to cars, uh, the sale of Twitter, the sentencing of Elizabeth Holmes, and the shocking attack on Paul Pelosi. So uh, obviously in the 30 minutes that we have, we're uh, barely going to scratch the surface of this year's news. But uh, given the time that we do have, I was hoping we could start with a look at this year in politics, uh, because in many ways... This was a year defined by its elections and its recalls. That's right. Thinking back to February, San Francisco voters recalled three school board members and then just a few months later went to recall District Attorney Chesa Boudin. And of course, the November election brought new leadership to cities and counties throughout the region, including new mayors for Oakland and San Jose. So, Phil, the Bay Area's political landscape saw a lot of change in 2022. Would you say there was a through line to all this? What direction were voters pushing in? 
You know, voters in San Francisco seem to be taking a look around at what they had uh, embraced ideologically and then made a judgment as to whether it was working on the street. And they came up with a no vote. And that resulted in the recall of progressive, reform-minded District Attorney Chesa Bodine and, as you noted, three members of the uh, Board of uh, Education. In the rest of the Bay Area, it was largely in San Jose. It became status quo and stayed that way. Uh, in the East Bay, it's going to be interesting to see. We have a new mayor of uh, Oakland and in part a repudiation of uh, Libby Schaaf's sort of moderate mainstream uh, politics. It's now progressive, Shin Tao. And we'll also have a new district attorney, a progressive district attorney in Alameda County. It remains to be seen how those directions are going. But this last year, the world took a look at San Francisco, was highly critical of what it saw, and we saw the residents reacting by voting some of those people out. I'm glad you brought that up, Phil, because, of course, what was going on in San Francisco with the recalls got a lot of national attention. Was there a danger in reading too much of what was going on in San Francisco as a bellwether for other municipalities? Well, it was. It was. I don't think we're reading too much. You know, what we saw was we didn't see in in, in the Bay Area a, a red tide, as they were predicting, but we did see red seepage. In other words, the concerns of more conservative people were being felt in the Bay Area and in, not just in here. We saw it in Portland. We saw it in Seattle, a number and in Los Angeles. A number of the progressives uh, took a step back, said, maybe we've gone too far. The defund police went from that to we've got to hire more police. Even the most progressives are now calling for basically bounties to be paid for people willing to become police officers. We saw, you know, uh, shifts in that direction, Patty, that uh, I think are, are very important because it's going to play out in the national stage as well. Everybody said, hey, did we take a step too far and take it time to take a step back? At the same time, of course, it wasn't an entire step away from some of the progressive ideals that the uh, Bay Area espouses. I mean, you mentioned uh, Sheng Tao. She was the labor-aligned candidate in Oakland. And uh, if we look at uh, where uh, I do most of my reporting in Santa Clara County, uh, the DA, Jeff Rosen, I mean, he was definitely the centrist uh, candidate in that election. Uh, But he also has been you know, pretty outspoken about some uh, relatively progressive reforms that he's embraced over his tenure. So uh, certainly not a complete retreat from uh, progressivism. No, but in San Francisco, you have to understand that even our most conservative would be a progressive, progressive in Cleveland. So there is a there is a, a, a scale here and in San Francisco. And, you know, that was one of the lessons learned. And I will tell you, even among, uh, you know, the progressive uh, activists in some ways uh, that San Francisco in the Bay Area is already, you know, the the leader in much of the climate change, uh, judicial reform change, uh, income equity change, uh, housing. Uh, all of that is already in the forefront. And it was, an un, you know, not necessarily the place that needed even a bigger push, but it got a bigger push. And one of those big pushes was Chesa Bodine, who said we were going to even take it further. Well, that crossed a line. And so I would say that, yes, San Francisco and the Bay Area did not abandon its progressive uh, ideals. However, it did trim its sails. 
All right. Well, uh, we're going to see how some of those trends unfold in the new year, to be sure. Right now, I'm going to remind listeners that this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Mancone, joined by my colleague Patty Rising and KCBS insider Phil Mateer. Today, we're reflecting on how 2022 changed the Bay Area. And so far, we've had plenty of big news stories to hang our conversation on. Uh, but sometimes major change comes in small steps. So up next, we're going to mark the first of three mini-segments in this program, talking about some of the slower-moving trends that unfolded this year. Uh, First up, bringing on a local public health expert to talk about this year and COVID. 2022 will be looked at as a a year of contradictions vis-a-vis COVID. Getting the take there from Dr. John Swartzberg, Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases with UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. On the one hand, we had a terrible time with that virus, particularly in the first half of 2022 with Omicron and all of its subvariants. On the other hand, if you look around at how people are acting right now, you know, no masks, dining indoors, you can tell the average resident is not as concerned with this virus as they once were. Now, we're going to put a pin in the debate over how careful is careful enough, but Swartzberg does acknowledge that the optimism people are feeling, well, it's here for a reason. Because of the vaccines, because the virus has changed a little bit with Omicron to be less serious than Delta, and because we have treatments. We have, for example, Paxlovid, which has a marked effect on reducing the duration of illness preventing hospitalization and death. So we have more tools during 2022 than we had previously. And I think that lent itself towards people being more casual about the virus. Despite all those gains, he says in the coming year, the virus is still projected to kill over 100,000 more people in the US. And of course, that's just an estimate. This is a virus that's proved time and again, it's got plenty of tricks up its sleeves. So the most honest answer that I think a scientist or a physician can say to what's going to be happening in the future with this virus is, we don't know. Dr. John Swartzberg with UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. All right. So we've talked about Bay Area politics, COVID. Now for another issue that has defined Bay Area life, the homelessness crisis. This year, both Oakland and San Jose worked to clear two massive homeless encampments. These efforts have been slow-moving affairs, sparking both criticism and lawsuits over the treatment of unhoused residents. And while many people have been placed in housing, overall, the rehousing effort is not keeping pace. One San Jose official told me that for every one person the city manages to permanently house, two to three more enter their housing system for the first time seeking assistance. Meantime, San Francisco launched its own effort to deal with human misery on the streets, with drug overdose deaths reaching an alarming level. Mayor London Breed opened the Tenderloin Center, which aimed to help unhoused people struggling with addiction to find their way into housing and treatment. Well, here again, it's hard to know what it all added up to, because before the year even ended, the city decided to close the center back down. Phil, we heard a lot over the course of the pandemic about the new funding and the new programs coming to address homelessness. It's clear this crisis is still very much with us. What do you think has been accomplished over the past 12 months? Very little in moving forward, Uh, pretty much just bailing out a ship that's continuing to sink. We have to be honest here. 
until this year, many cities uh, were just uh, saying that maybe this can go away. Maybe it's a temporary situation. Oakland has still yet to come up with a definitive plan. I'm not even sure it's capable of it. Uh, uh, San Jose is still grappling. San Francisco is spending $2 million a day, a day on everything from ambassadors to try to keep the streets clean, to shelters, to housing for the homeless, and still it does not appear to be making a visible impact. Thousands of people have been put into hotel rooms at a very high cost. We're not sure how long that's going to last. It was paid for with federal COVID dollars. The state has come in. Gavin Newsom has come in with his Project Home Key, which is buying old motels and hotels and turning them over to cities and counties saying you can use these as housing. But he's not coming through yet with the funds to staff those and make sure those people who are going into those hotels get the services they need to stop from going back out on the streets. So across the board, we're seeing movement and billions of dollars being spent, but we're not seeing results yet. You know, Phil, when you talk about what people can see, you, I, Keith, we've all been covering this crisis for so long, and we see the different programs. You talk to people on the street, and you know what they say? It's getting worse. They haven't been into San Francisco a lot during the pandemic. They see all those tent cities. They drive on the freeway, so they see all those tent cities. They think it's much worse. It is. It's visually worse. You cannot, you know, deny that. The encampments have grown. They get moved. We put people in tiny houses. We do this. We do that. But, it, Patty, it has gotten worse and visibly worse. You cannot drive along a Bay Area freeway just about without seeing at the exit ramp or an entrance ramp tents popped up somewhere. We have a real, I don't want to say crisis, but here we have. We have invented our own trap. You cannot order people off the streets. You have to wait until they are willing to get off the streets. If they don't want to get off the streets, you are hampered from doing anything there. We have not decided. We don't want to criminalize the behavior, but we don't want to see it. It's it's a six of one half dozen of the other. You If you do get off the streets, the problem is that you to take care of those people is going to be for the rest of their lives. There is no real exiting out unless somebody has just fallen on hard times and is capable of working and needs a hand to keep from going to the streets. We can handle that. But if someone has mental ill or drug issues, you know, I have, I'm sorry to say I've watched it and watched it. And it is a, a round and round thing where at least half the people wind up back out on the streets. Well, that kind of touches on some of the efforts that we've been seeing in San Francisco and the Tenderloin Center. That is a project that was perfectly bracketed by the year that we just saw, went up at the beginning of the year, went down uh, towards the end. Uh, and uh, London Breed said that ultimately she closed it down because it was not getting as many people into services as she had hoped uh, at the beginning. I think it was also supposed to be temporary. But uh, Phil, uh, what do you think the city learned from that experience? Well, what the... <laughs> You know, we have to be honest with what the experience really was. Mayor London Breed declared a state of emergency after UC Hastings, which is located in the Tenderloin, teamed up with neighbors and uh, other people and filed suit against the city, saying this place is inhabitable, uninhabitable. Uh, there's streets are, are clogged with tents. There's open drug dealing. This would not be allowed to go on anywhere else. She opened up a Tenderloin uh, emergency center uh, because she had to do something. And this was one of those things that was a wink 
wink and a nod to also what they called a harm reduction center or a safe injection center. People could go in there and do their drugs and not overdose because there were medical personnel around. It was never officially uh, sanctioned as that. And when it was discovered to be that, it was an embarrassment. And eventually they shut it down when the time ran out. The point was that the center is was still on a voluntary basis. Some of it was window dressing. Another part of it was to say that we were doing something as she increased police patrols in the area and increased arrests. But in the end, it, it showed that San Francisco still doesn't have a decision on what to do about people who just want to get high and live on the streets. They have not come to a decision on that. And until they do, it's going to continue to happen. So a year of indecision is perhaps how we should think about this. Yes. I mean, this what we're seeing is, or as I say, it's a year in transition. We're finding out that what we thought, if you do it, it doesn't necessarily work. And that goes from judicial reform to defunding the police to saying that we don't want to criminalize drugs and drug addiction. All of that we're seeing the results of, and people are going, wait a minute, this isn't working. This is a year in transition, and I think it'll be remembered at that. Where we go from here is absolutely critical to the Bay Area's future. Yeah, well, and we're beginning to write the next chapter in that story uh, as we speak. But uh, moving on to our next topic, uh, once again, going to remind folks that this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Padding Rising and Phil Mateer. As we close out this year, we're talking about some of the biggest news stories of the past 12 months. Up next, taking a brief interlude once again to hear from another local expert, this time talking about the year in fire and drought. 2022 got off to an incredibly dry start and all signs pointed to a punishing fire season, but instead we ended up getting off pretty easy with the second fewest acres burned of any year in the past decade. What made the difference? Rains that fell just in the nick of time. We got a decent amount of rain and snow in April, even though January, February, and March were record dry. April was pretty wet, and so that delayed things drying out. Hearing there from Paul Rogers, environment writer for the Mercury News. Then the, the key moment came in mid-September when right after a record heat wave, when things looked really bad, we got a rare bit of mid-September rain from a tropical storm in Mexico that spun off a lot of precipitation here. And that kind of saved the day. But unfortunately, he says 2022 should not be seen as a sign that our fire future has suddenly grown more stable. Climate change is still very much with us. I mean, this year, uh, during Labor Day week, California experienced a severe heat wave, which showed us the all-time hottest temperatures that have ever been recorded in Northern California. Temperatures on September 7th this year hit 118 degrees in Calistoga. No temperature has ever been recorded that hot anywhere in the nine-county Bay Area. That stressed the state's power grid. Uh, air conditioning spiked to all-time uh, high electricity uh, demand. Blackouts were very narrowly averted. And so that shows the kind of future that we could well have next year and the years ahead. We need to continue to adapt and prepare as the climate keeps getting hotter. Paul Rogers with the Mercury News. All right. Thanks for that, Patty. And we're actually going to head straight on now to one more expert mini segment, our final one for this program. Uh, this time we'll be talking about the year in office life, uh, because here at the end of 2022, some are arguing this will be remembered as a watershed year in how we work. I think it's the year when hybrid work from home became permanent. 
Stanford economist and remote work expert Nick Bloom. So at the beginning of 2022, there were a lot of managers, professionals, folks in the media saying, you know, this thing is fleeting. Uh, as soon as the pandemic ends, we are going to go back to the office full time. Turns out at the end of 2022, that's just not happened. So at this point, it's pretty clear we are permanently going to be working from home on average a couple of days a week, going into the office typically three days a week. He says a big reason that we're here now is that, well, workers like this hybrid work model. So even for managers that do want their employees back in the office, it's an expensive ask at this point. If you want to be tough and tell your employees, look, you got to come in five days a week, from our survey data, we know you have to put up pay by about 10%. And they're not any more productive. In fact, they're less productive. So I've talked to hundreds of firms. <laughs> you know, the simple story is if something makes your employees more productive and saves you a lot of money on, you know, paying retention and sign-on bonuses, why wouldn't you do it? Stanford economist Nick Bloom. And so it's interesting to hear him talk there. It really does sound like when it comes to the workplace in 2022, we finally reached something that we've been talking about for a bunch of years at this point, the new normal. Ever since this pandemic started, we've been hearing about the new normal, that long-awaited new way that where life is kind of stabilized out. We've finally found our stride. And here, at least in one regard, it looks like we did that in 2022. Uh, I'm curious for uh, the perspective from both of you in this uh, final segment that we have in the program today for maybe some other ways where 2022 revealed a new normal that we can expect going into the future. Because you know, for all the disruptions that we did see in this past year, I think fair to say things stabilized a little bit from the past two years prior. So, Phil, starting with you, uh, fair to say that there were some signs of a new normal in this past year? Well, uh, we have to be honest. Uh, normal and the Bay Area don't coexist. We don't do <laughs> normal here. OK, we don't. Normal with big scare quotes. OK, we just don't. Uh, we do different. Uh, we sometimes, you know, and. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But what we do have here is a seismic change brought on by COVID. COVID accelerated a lot of things, whether it was the fentanyl epidemic, the homeless epidemic, uh, uh, schools, uh, public schools falling behind. All of that was accelerated. And of course, work from home. The question going forward, or one of the key questions is, what is the future of cities, especially here in the Bay Area? Do office buildings, do retail, do will that continue to exist the way we saw it? Will BART continue to be taking people to work if they don't work in the cities anymore? We're hardwired into key areas like Oakland, San Jose, and San Francisco, but that may not be the pattern in what we're calling the new normal. The Bay Area has always been a boom-bust place. We've seen them rise and we've seen them fall before, but we've never seen so many different things hit at once as we've seen this year. What's the normal coming out of this is anyone's guess. And uh, Patty, from your view in the studio, uh, narrating our, our, the news of the Bay Area over these uh, past 12 months, uh, have you seen signs of a new normal, some stability coming out of the pandemic? You know, Keith, I don't even like to use the word normal anymore. I, when it comes to COVID and when it comes to our recovery, and I'm not being glib, I'm not being flip. I just don't use that term anymore. I use yeah. the, the term before times. You know, mm -hmm. it's like the before times. It's funny. I went to New York City. I took one big trip at, in the beginning of December, and, and it was in Manhattan, right? And, and the place was packed. 
I was talking to the cabbies. I was in Ubers. I was on the subway. And and I just could not get over how many people there were uh, on the streets and, and, and working in the office building or at least walking to or around the office buildings. I presumed a lot of them were going in and, of course, tons and tons of tourists. And I said, wow. I kept saying to you know, chatting people up and they said, isn't downtown San Francisco like this? And I said, oh, no, it's empty because I drive through it every day. I've been driving through it every day through the financial district for 25 years, right? And it's not the same. No, it is not. It, you know, Patty, you've hit it right on the head. This is a unique area that where other cities are bouncing back. They're coming back. We're not. We're not having the tourists. We're not having the techies. We're not having any of it what we saw before. Right. And we even see that in the population numbers, uh, just a, a massive decline in the population of San Francisco over the past uh, couple of years. And uh, again, going back to some of the things that uh, Nick Bloom was telling me, um, there are people who uh, are going to uh, win from this. Obviously, there's losers. There's um, businesses that are not going to get frequented as much. But for people that maybe were hoping to get an apartment in San Francisco, uh, 2023 could be looking up for them, Phil. Yes, it could be. Uh, there's going to be uh, the and people looking to get an apartment in Oakland and a lot of the other markets are. The question is, and this is the question we're facing, is will those people be here? Will they be looking? Will they be looking here or will they be looking elsewhere? You know what I really wonder about uh, both Phil and Keith, and that is this whole forcing people back into the office thing. I am seeing both personally and professionally um, some resistance and and if employers want to get everybody back in, you know, I'm seeing maybe three days a week, you know, with more traditional non-radio businesses. But I think that story has yet to be fully told uh, of what's going to happen and, and uh, the workplace displacement when people leave when they don't get what they want. I, I think there's still more to come on that one. I agree. And I will say this, uh, that it started early, months ago. We heard about people going in three days a week. I haven't seen it. And I don't think you have either when you're driving through. There's no days of the week where you feel like that place is, is, is back. Oh, no. Oh, no. But it's easier no. to drive through the city on Monday. Yes. So, you know, the day uh, we are seeing a seismic shift in that, not only because because not only are we have workers that that, uh, uh, you know, the question of you have to you should come back. There's fewer workers to come back, because on top of this, we have really we're entering a very uncertain time when it comes to what we call tech or, or the marketing world of the sales forces, the Facebooks, the Twitter. These huge employers in the Bay Area might not be having the numbers that they had a year or two ago. So you can say we're going to come back to work. But how many workers are there going to be to come back to work? Yeah, just uh, so many unanswered questions there. And I, I think what the both of you are hitting on is that the way that our downtown centers have functioned, the way that our transportation has functioned, it's all been built on a set of assumptions about how people act, where people live, what people are doing. And now that's all changing very, very rapidly. I mean, yes. I guess it, it might be a little bit churlish of me to close things out on this note, but uh, predictions for 2023 or are we beyond predictions at this point? Is this just such a fast changing world that it's impossible to say where we're going, Phil? 
I think that this is a make it or break it year for San Francisco and the Bay Area. If San Francisco doesn't pull something together and make a market change, it's going to have in and not just let's let's say in the homelessness, in the cost of doing things, it's cost 15 percent more to 30 percent more to operate a business around San Francisco than it does in another city across the country. You can't be the most expensive and have the homeless problem and have all of this going on. Something has got to change or else you are just going to have become a, a an empty place. It's as simple as that. Phil, I agree with you on a make it or break it year for San Francisco. And I also am very reluctant to make any other predictions. And you know what I have noticed as someone who interviews people all day, that because of COVID, that the uncertainty, the way it's unfolded, it's been so unpredictable. I notice more and more people are afraid to make predictions mm. because it's been so crazy. Yes, because you can only make predictions by basing things on what you know and what you've seen in the past. And as you said, that was before times. Now, anything can happen, and chances are it will. Yeah, the casino odds have changed, are changing, are going to continue to change. And what 2023 is going to look like is anybody's bet. Uh, So uh, Happy New Year's, everybody, on that note. Uh, But uh, glad that we get to spend it all with our listeners out there in the Bay Area. And thank you for spending uh, this past 30 minutes with us. Going to round things out right there. um, And thank Phil Mateer, KCBS insider Phil Mateer. Thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. And we'll be here this year to watch it all. That we can predict accurately, I hope. Uh, And uh, thank everybody for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. And I'm Patty Rising. Stay safe, be well. Talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.